Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we're talking about California's first-in-the-nation Ebony Alert System, which aims to help find missing black children and young adults. I'm Andrew Bowen, here with conversations that keep you informed and inspired and make you think. Senator Stephen Bradford authored the law that established the new alert system. This nation's history has proven that there is disparities, there's discrepancies, and there's discrimination at all levels, and it still plays a part today. So how does the Ebony Alert aim to address those disparities? Plus, the youngest freedom rider revisits what it was like to be put on death row at just 13 years old. That's ahead on Midday Edition... Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Brothers Orin and Orson West, Satina Princess Weddles, Daphne Webb, Those are the names of a few of the missing black children in California. Of the currently 25 missing children listed on the California Attorney General's website, 10 of them are black. California is the first state to create the Ebony Alert System to help find missing black children and young women. Democratic State Senator Stephen Bradford authored the legislation and spoke with Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. So what moved you to put this legislation together? Uh, the data. I mean, it spoke loud and clear to not only me, the NAACP, Black and Missing Foundation, and just numerous other organizations that just looked at the disparities when it comes to providing resources and law enforcement to return uh, young African-Americans home safely who wind up missing mysteriously. So I think the data spoke to why it was so important. What are, What is that data? Uh, it states that, you know, a African-Americans who make up Roughly 14% of not only the state, but this nation's population make up almost 38% of the kids that are missing in California and across this nation. And that's alarming, and that should be troubling to each and every one of us. Um, And more times than not, African-American kids 
who are missing, they're listed as runaways versus abducted uh, are missing, but they're listed as runaways. Those young folks who are also being sex trafficked are often listed as juvenile prostitutes. So again, that diminishes the priority of looking for these individuals. So we just want to make sure that we dedicate the same level of resources, both through the media and law enforcement to returning these individuals home safely. Yeah. Well, the data clearly says something needs to be done. What do you think sits at the root of this problem? I hate to say it, but it's racism. I mean, if you can do it for those folks who don't look like us, what else can you attribute it to? And I hate to say that, uh, but I think this nation's history has proven that there's disparities, there's discrepancies, and there's discrimination at all levels. And it still plays a part today, especially when it comes to the number of missing individuals who are, you know, the resources are dedicated to try to bring them home. Mm. Uh, you know, the data also shows that missing persons cases for Black people also remain open longer than those of white people. Why do you think that is? Again, dedicating those resources and making this a priority. I mean, there's a TV show out right now dealing with missing individuals, and it speaks to why this should be a priority right now. When you have a TV show right now focusing on individuals who disappear and resources are not dedicated to bringing them home in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how will the Ebony Alert system differ from the Amber Alert system and how will it work? Well, it's going to work similar to uh, the Amber Alert. First, it has to work. And Amber Alert is not working right now. So we want it to work in the same fashion that uh, it's the Amber Alert has been working for those non-African-American and non-Latinos. But what we do differently is that it addresses individuals from 12 to 25, whereas the Amber Alert only deals with individuals 17 years or younger. Ours also states that if you're known to have suffered from some type of mental or physical disability, that is a priority for uh, initiating the alert as well. Or if an individual has been suspected of being abducted or disappeared mysteriously or possibly a victim of sex trafficking or sex crimes, that too will trigger an ebony alert. Let's unwrap that a little bit. Uh, The Amber Alert system is not working for um, Black children uh, who go missing. If they are on the Amber Amber Alert system, though, Um, Is it helpful in that instance or do people have a tendency to still um, not come forward with information for some reason when uh, a black child is missing? There is hesitancy because many times they feel law enforcement is not going to respond in a a in the same manner or in a, a timely manner. So we we do have to deal with that. But hopefully through this Ebony Alert, we will better educate the public that this exists for those missing Black kids and also further engage law enforcement at a, at a greater degree. I hate to always hear folks say, oh, they have to be pop- properly trained. I don't feel law enforcement needs to be properly trained or retrained, I should say, in order to deal with this issue. And it just has to be a priority, just like they make uh, those other individuals who disappear a priority. We just got to make sure that African-Americans are, you know, uh, afforded the same level of resources and attention when they disappear. Mm. I guess I'm. Uh, my next question then is, is, then do you see the need to take this legislation a step further to ensure that all of the resources at, at law enforcement's disposal are used consistently when when searching for missing children? 
Consistency is the key. I mean, it's, it means absolutely nothing to put this in place and it's used, uh, you know, sporadically. We want this to be a priority. We want once the alert to go out, that to, it to be real and it be paid attention to and that resources are forwarded to those individuals and, and making sure that, you know, they are found in a timely manner. So uh, we, we want to make this a priority. Do you think there needs to be some legislation to um, ensure that law enforcement uh, use their resources consistently? Uh, I would say, yeah, but that's a harder nut to crack, making sure that law enforcement. I mean, it's a shame that we have to legislate them to do what they do on the natural when it's not people of color. So I, I, I always hate to have to introduce legislation to ask people to do the right thing by one another. So I would hope they find it in their heart that they would want to do this. And again, they often talk about having to retrain law enforcement. And I, to me, that's really just this excuse because you don't need to be retrained if your heart is right and you want to do the right thing. The Ebony Alert uh, will also include runaways, uh, whereas the Amber Alert doesn't, right? That's correct. But again, most of these African-Americans are labeled as runaways when they're, they have been abducted. So, uh we just want to clear that up too and, and re- reduce the, those mislabeling. Again, how do you label a minor, a juvenile prostitute? But you'll see almost two thirds of African American women who are being sex trafficked under the age of 18 are also labeled as a juvenile prostitute. And we know a minor can't consent to sex. Yeah, yeah. San Diego, you know, is known to have a problem with uh, sex trafficking and and human trafficking in general. Um, how do you see the Ebony Alert aiding in the rescue of those victims, as you just mentioned? Again, bringing attention to the number of individuals who are disappearing on a regular basis that you never see anything, you know, no blurbs, no uh, signs, uh, the highway signs being utilized, none of our social media platforms being utilized. So we want to take advantage of all that. Uh, and, and, and making sure that our radio uh, stations are involved in it, our TV networks are involved in it, and again, all our s- social uh, media outlets. We just want to make sure that they're aware of it. So this is what we're going to spend the next couple of months doing prior to the bill uh, going into action and just educating individuals to let them know that this is a new uh, alert that's in place that's targeting African-Americans. And it's a shame that we have to, you know, segregate ourselves like this in in order to bring attention to a a majorly ignored problem. But uh, uh, hopefully it's going to help solve the problem that uh, has been ignored for far too long. And, you know, there are similar alerts for other segments of the population. Tell us about that. We have the Feather Alert, which was passed last year for Indigenous uh, Native American individuals, the first people. And uh, surprisingly, we didn't hear all the hoopla about, oh, that's so discriminatory. How how are you separating people based on race? And we passed that with no problem. We also have the Silver Alert for our seniors, 65 and older, to disappear. And a lot of folks are unaware that there's also a Blue Alert for missing law enforcement or individuals who are suspected of hurting or killing a police officer looking for them as well. So those various alerts have never gotten the level of attention and, and you know, questioning why it's needed as Af- African-Americans. But uh, we f- feel we're just as important as those other ones, but they're working and we want the uh, Ebony Alert to work in the same fashion. Yeah. So the, so the Ebony Alert goes into effect on January 1st. What needs to be done to get ready for that rollout? Again, working with law enforcement to make sure that this 
new uh, alert as respect it and support it. Having those resources, again, working with our media outlets to make them aware of this new tool to help bring individuals home and just educating the public as well to let them know that here are the criteria, here's when it should be activated. And again, working with not only our local law enforcement agencies, but with our highway patrol as well, so that we take advantage of the highway uh, digital signs as well when individuals are deemed missing or, you know, abducted. Yeah. And we touched on this a bit earlier, but, uh, you know, there's been criticism that the Amber Alert isn't effective and thus the Ebony Alert may not be either. Uh, What do you say to that criticism? Uh, It's hard to answer that. I mean, there's some truth to that. I mean, but hopefully, again, by bringing attention to the disparities of when individuals are found and when Amber Alerts are initiated, I think it speaks to, again, making folks aware that this is a new tool that's available that we should be taking advantage of to make sure that we bring folks home in a timely manner and, and as safe as possible. So I'm I'm hoping it's going to, you know, be what we intended to be a, a resource that we will take advantage of. It's a shame that we have to use something like this. But uh, again, history has shown that it's needed. And finally, what remains to be done to address this issue beyond the Ebony Alert? Uh, that's a hard question. I just are changing our relationships with one another here in this state and in this country and understanding that we're all equal. You know, we're all entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and our lives should be valued just as much as anyone else's. So again, uh, I wish I had a magic wand to, you know, make us all see us as one. But, um, Again, I guess our biggest challenge right now is, again, to educate the public that this tool is available and why it's needed and how do we take advantage of using it in a, in a timely and respectful way. Do you hope that other states and um, regions will use uh, something like the Ebony Alert system? Uh, the data speaks to the need for it, and it's often said, so goes California, so goes the nation. We've got tremendous amount of outreach all across the country, the majority of it in support of this. So I could very well see other states looking to implement this in the near future. Uh, We're going to Tennessee next month with the National Black Caucus of State Legislators, and I have no doubt this will be one of the topics of discussions for model legislation that they uh, look to implement. So I do possibly see more states implementing it, or at least uh, the National Black Caucus uh, taking a good look at how and uh, how it can be utilized in those respective states. That was Midday Edition host Jade Hindman speaking with the author of the legislation that will create the Ebony Alert System, State Senator Stephen Bradford. What do you think would be helpful in addressing the disparity between the rate of black children and white children going missing? Give us a call at 619-452-0228 and leave a message, or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, the conversation continues with Guy Tane Borders, the president of a nonprofit that runs an alert system similar to the one that's coming to California. It would be crazy to think that for some reason, um, racial disparity and racism somehow doesn't find its way when it comes to missing persons. Of course it does. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, 
Our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen. A child goes missing every 40 seconds, and 40% of those children are children of color. That's according to the Georgia-based nonprofit Peas in Their Pods. The organization seeks to raise awareness about missing children of color and give resources and support to the families of those missing children. KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman spoke with the group's president and CEO, Gaitane Borders. So first, what's your reaction to California's new Ebony Alert Law? I am absolutely ecstatic um, to hear this news. I think it's a long time in coming, and it's definitely several steps in the right direction. And your organization actually has something similar. Tell me about that. Yes, we... um, Our organization started in 2007, and it was at that time, around that time, that we realized that there was an inadequate amount of media attention or attention at all given to children um, of color who are missing. And so to that end, there was one story of a missing girl that really touched us. And that was a story of Riley Wilson, who was a child who was missing for um, over a year and nobody knew. And Mm. so we, we named our alert system in her honor. Hmm. You know, when I I spoke with State Senator Stephen Bradford, I asked him why there was a need for an alert system for Black children and young women. And he told me it boils down to racism. I mean, do you see it that way too, especially given um, Ryla's case? Well, listen, stats don't lie. Numbers don't lie. They're Black and white. Um, I do believe that there has been disparity in the way that children and persons of color in general have been treated um, that that are missing, I should say, and in general. And so that is that is absolutely true. It would be crazy to think that for some reason, um, racial disparity and racism somehow doesn't find its way when it comes to missing persons. Of course it does. Hmm. And I want to circle back. Tell me more about the case of Ryla um, that really inspired this alert that you all have. She was in foster care and there was a lot of cover up because her foster care um, caseworker had falsified some documents stating that they had done some home visits when really they had not. Um, So on the record, it looked like she was okay, that Raleigh was okay. But in reality, she had been missing for quite some time and had endured quite a bit of abuse during that time. That's that's awful. Um, You know, we've so we've got these alert systems, but it sounds like um, there's a lot that needs to change within systems as well. 
That is correct because these alert systems are just that, but they are fueled by humans <laughs> and humans sometimes can be flawed, right? So with the Ebony Alert, it's wonderful because it's an alert system that's dedicated for persons of color within a specific age range. Um, but it also does require for law enforcement to do a thing, right? Follow certain steps to um, pull the trigger so that the alert can be initiated. So there's still work to be done, but that's why I say it's a step in the right direction because it it um, focuses a spotlight on an issue that so many have refused to acknowledge as an issue. And that is that people of color are disappearing at alarming rates. Hmm. What does the data say about the need for these alert systems, specifically for Black children, as you just kind of alluded to? Right. Because people of color, particularly African-Americans, only make up, what, 13% of the population. But the data, the data that comes out every year through the NCIC shows that people of color make up, it's been about 40% holding steady 40% for the past several years. Um, And those numbers just don't add up. 13% of the population should not make up that large a percentage of those that are missing. And for children, every 40 seconds, a child is reported missing. And about 40% of those kids are of color. Hmm. And let me unpack that a little bit more. Is it that Black children and children of color are going missing at a higher rate than white children? Or is it that, uh, you know, that white children are are just being found, that that more resources have been allocated to finding them? It's a combination of both, of all of that. Um, For sure, the research is showing that children of color, women of color are being targeted, right? And that's why they make up such a high percentage of um, the abduction when it comes to sexual abduction, sexual uh, manipulation, that sort of thing. So those communities, our communities are being targeted. Now, on the flip of that, there aren't enough resources out there to help find them when they are being taken. So there is limited media coverage, whether it's print or popular media, there's limited talk about it. And so That is really impactful because even within the communities of color, when those communities don't see images of children and women and men that look like them that are missing, they naturally assume that it doesn't impact the community as much as it does when really it's an epidemic that's occurring. Hmm. You know, what does that say to you about how Black children, um, young Black adults are valued in this society? Well, it definitely says that children of color, people of color, women of color are not as valued. That's that's hard to dispute, Um, but it's true. And I've been saying this for for very, very, very long time. um, And that continues to be the case when you look at the numbers and the high numbers of people of color that are missing, yet people of color receive the least amount of media coverage it just doesn't add up. Um, So it does show that there's a lack of value. And that's something that plays into police reporting, um, how these children and women are being classified on the police report. A lot of times they're labeled as runaways and not as endangered. And why is that? Why are they labeled as runaways in your eyes? 
the bias there, um, inherent bias, is that they're not seemed they're not deemed as children in distress, that they're actually out there on purpose, maybe getting into trouble or doing adulting type things and they don't need help. They're not seen as in distress. And I've seen that whether we're talking about a child that's as young as eight or seven or whether we're talking about a 17 year old. So there is that preconceived notion that um, children of color are somehow in the community doing something negative and therefore they don't, we don't need to bother looking for them. Either they'll come back on their own or whatever, they're just fine. Yeah. Uh, From your experience, how difficult um, has it been or what challenges have you faced um, when talking with parents um, and with trying to get the attention needed to bring a child of color or a young adult of color back home? It's trying. It takes a lot of energy, can be very, 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 very frustrating for the families. And that's why we do, we work so hard in the work that we do and helping them advocate because it can be like going up against a brick wall when you're going up against law enforcement, right? It can be intimidating for one um, and it you feel powerless. There are so many times when um, they feel like, families feel like they're not being listened to. And once once they get a police report with runaway distinction on it, that doesn't allow them to get an Amber Alert. It typically doesn't allow them to get any media coverage either. So you can only imagine how deeply depressing, saddening, and demoralizing that is for families. The families that do the best are the ones that are really persistent. And we encourage them, you have to be persistent um, and not easily intimidated because it is a very intimidating process. You mentioned that children of color and women of color are being targeted for abduction. Um, What do we know about why they're being targeted? And I ask that question specifically because oftentimes young girls are lured away and and lured into sex trafficking online. Um, And I would imagine that law enforcement would even classify that as a runaway situation, right? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do because um, the nuance is that they have met someone online and they're leaving the home on purpose to go meet somebody, right? But we know what grooming looks like and that they think they're going to meet somebody, but in fact, they're going to meet up with somebody completely different. Um, But the African-American community, community of color is very much targeted because the repercussions are not as stern um, when it comes to the community. So a lot of these traffickers will put invest a lot of energy in luring away young Black girls, young Black women, um, abducting young Black boys as well, because they know that even if they're caught, it's a slap on the hand. In fact, in fact, the, the children oftentimes are labeled as prostitutes, even though they're being sex trafficked. And they're children. And they're children, correct. So that's why they know, these, these traffickers know, um, if they can um, infiltrate the community and abduct and lure this community away, they may or may not face jail time. They may or may not. But if they do the same thing on a different side of town with a different demographic, 
the penalties are greater. Hmm. And are there, do you know any stats on that? I mean, how big is the, is that discrepancy there? It's very, very big. It's very, very big. I don't have those numbers at my fingers right now, but when we're talking about the same numbers that we're talking about when it comes to missing, um, how wide and like in your face those numbers are, particularly in areas where there's hub, a hub of sex trafficking, like here in Atlanta, where Peas in Their Pots home base is, um, those numbers are astronomical. Hmm. And, you know, as we we uh, talk about uh, trafficking, I mean, California is one of the nation's top four destinations for human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And according to the FBI, San Diego, where we are, is one of the top 13 cities in the country with what they call high intensity child prostitution areas. So how difficult is it to rescue children from sex traffickers and even young adults? It is um, very challenging for many, many reasons. When we look at the issue of sex trafficking, we know that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So there are people from all different walks of life with their hands um, in this industry. When we see all the um, the raids and the busts, the arrests that they make, and you look at the different professionals that are involved, we're talking about judges, lawyers, doctors, teachers, coaches, uh, housewives, it's a cross section. And these individuals work really hard to make it difficult for us to save children. Not to mention that these individuals, children and young adults are being shipped across the world. So sometimes even before we recognize that they're missing, they've been taken to a completely different part of the country or perhaps out of the country. So yes, it is a challenge. And that's why it takes everybody, every single person to be vigilant and to speak up when they see something that just doesn't seem right um, because it's that pervasive and that difficult for um, us to save these young people and these individuals in general. Mm. And how can parents and family members prevent abductions from happening? I mean, are there things to look out for? Most definitely. It begins by having earnest conversations within the home. We do a lot of trainings specifically for um, young girls and teen girls. And what we find is that these young people that have the lowest self-esteem are the ones that are prone to being lured right? So if they're not receiving the attention or they don't feel the connection and the love at home, they will seek it elsewhere. And there is always someone on the other side of the screen or in the community waiting and watching always. And so it begins by talking as a family um, and then also having like very, very candid conversations about what's going on in the world. But then also, lastly, I know some parents don't like this, but monitoring our children online and also their cell phones, because these perpetrators are very, very, very manipulative. manipulative. And if they want to access children, they will. So we have to be vigilant in the home as well as parents and guardians. Guyton, thank you so much for joining us. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. That was KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman speaking with Guytane Borders, president and CEO of the nonprofit Peas in Their Pods. 
coming up on KPBS Midday Edition, Hezekiah Watkins revisits how he became the youngest freedom rider by accident. We began a little jingle. The freedom riders coming to Jackson, they coming to Jackson. Just loving it. We were just happy. Watkins tells us how the experience led to him being held on death row after officers mistook him as one of the protesters. That's after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen. In 1961, hundreds of black and white protesters were imprisoned for riding segregated buses into the South. They were known as the Freedom Riders. At just 13, Hezekiah Watkins became the youngest among them by accident. He was held on death row with no due process after officers mistook him as one of the protesters. His crime? Falling into the whites-only section of the Greyhound bus station. Watkins came to speak at the University of San Diego in October. He shared his story with KPBS race and equity reporter Katie Heisen. I was the type kid who loved watching television. And I fell asleep one day watching cartoons, but I was awakened with the national news on, and what I saw was unbelievable. So when the news went off, I ran next door to my close, close, close friend, and I wanted him to come and watch the news with me. So we come over, we watching the news, and. He said, man, I've never seen anything like this. You know, I've seen black folks being beaten, and what's, what's so surprising is they beating the white folks too. I said, man, I don't know what they call them, but they got to be some bad folks. And they were spraying this water on these individuals, and the velocity of this, this water was so strong, and it was knocking people over, knocking them down. We heard mention the word freedom riders, and uh, my friend named is Troy. Troy said, he said, freedom riders? I said, I think so. That's what they are, freedom riders. So we went to these guys and asked whether or not they ever heard of the freedom riders. And they jumped up, ooh, man, yeah, man, but you don't want to mess with them. I'm, I'm told that if you mess with the freedom riders, you're your house could be burned and a cross would be burned in your yard. So that was a little scary, so we kind of backed off, but we kept watching the news. Troy said, man, we have this teacher, his name was Mr. Jeremiah Turner. Troy said, why don't we go on his vacant period and just ask him? He'll tell us the truth. So a couple of days later, we went to his classroom, knocked on the door. We want to ask you about the Freedom Riders. The what? We want to ask you about the Freedom Riders. And he raised up from his desk, looked at us in our eyes, and said, get the hell out of here. Wow. Mr. Turner had never spoken to us like this before. So we're trying to figure out why. Okay, well, we walking out of his 
classroom with our head bowed and he yelled, you must want me to lose my job. The look on his face was scary and we didn't understand. But anyway, one day Troy came to my house and said, man, I got good news. I heard the Freedom Riders are on their way to Jackson. And I jumped up, he was already standing, and we began a little jingle. The Freedom Riders coming to Jackson, they coming to Jackson. Just loving it. We were just happy. Not happy because we wanted to join the Freedom Riders. We just want to see them and maybe touch one. And on Sunday was our church day, where we stayed in church all day. But Troy said, we got a place sick, and our parents would give us the opportunity to stay home. And we went to the Greyhound bus station. We get there, no one is there. And I tell Troy, maybe you had the time confused. And he said, no, I had the right time. So we began racing each other up and down the sidewalk of the Greyhound bus station. Let's go get some water. And after we get to the, uh, to the water fountain, we see this, this sign that's written on the bricks that read whites only. I looked at Troy and Troy looked at me and we didn't utter one word because we knew we were going to drink us some white water. And we did. He said, man, you know this water has vitamins, minerals, all kinds of iron in it. Well, we're going to be healthy. I said, let me see. Man, I don't think I tasted that. And I drank. I said, hey, man, you sure right? That's what it tastes like. So Troy pushed me away. Let me get some more. So he drinking more water. He said, man, this water tastes like Kool-Aid, too. I pushed him aside so I could try it. And it was a mind thing. I said, man, you sure right. It does taste just like Kool-Aid. And as we was uh, going back past the bus station, we are just pushing that kind of kids would do. He elbowed me, I elbowed him, but we still walking. And we get by the front door and Troy pushed me and I landed inside of the bus station. So I spot this sign across the ceiling and I'm looking, said whites only. But before I could bag completely out, uh, this officer uh, hit me on my shoulder and asked, why are you in here? And I told him, I said, well, officer, my, my friend out here pushed me in. He said, what friend? Officer, he's right here. So he took me by my wrist, led me back inside and said, where? I looked to my left, I looked to my right, that was no Troy. Your name and your birthplace. And I wasn't thinking, I just said Hezekiah Watkins. I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And when I said Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he get reached in his back pocket, a little 
two-way radio. I don't know what he said, but they came like flies, just, just running in. And said, we got another one here. I'm trying to figure out another what? What are you talking about? Told me to stand up, put my hands behind me. They put handcuffs on me. Uh, a transport vehicle came to pick me up. We rode, rode, and we rode some more. And I didn't know what the deal was or where I was going, but ended up at the state prison, Parchman, Mississippi, one of the most notorious prison in these United States and still is. I didn't know what to think. I'm scared, number one. But I didn't know it was a prison. Uh, it kind of looked like a, an old school. Uh, but I saw the wire uh, across the fence, top fence line. So I'm thinking maybe that's where they're going to hold me. I don't know what. So I'm told to get a mattress. While God there, I got a mattress. I was weighing maybe a hundred and 20, 25 pounds would be the most. Whereas I had to drag the mattress along with me. And they opened these doors, you, the, the click, click, and the slamming of the doors is not a good feeling. The inmates, um, they started a conversation with me uh, about what did you do? You're so young to be here. And I said, I didn't do anything. They all began laughing. They began asking me, who was the judge? I told them I didn't know. You don't know the jury that sent us you? I said, no. He said, well, who was your lawyer? I said, lawyer? Lawyer. And I thought of the name Perry Mason, the TV show. That was the only lawyer that I knew of. I'd never met a lawyer before. So I said Perry Mason. And they thought that was the biggest joke they had ever heard. And that's when the, um, the beating started. Um, um, my food was taken. Um, it was just a rough time there. And this is 1961. My mother was able to get the whites and the blacks together and began looking for me. Police came out and spoke with my mom and told her, you know, not to worry because your son ran off to Chicago or he might have gone to Detroit or he might be dead. So my mom was thinking that he didn't run off to any of those places, so he must be dead. But we had a president of these United States and his name was John Kennedy. I wasn't at the table, but I'm told that the president called the governor, his name was Ross Burnett of Mississippi, called him and I'm told the conversation went something like, I hear you have some minors in your prison. 
And the governor replied, no, sir, Mr. President, everybody here is of age, no minors. And I'm told that they hung up. But the next day, the governor called the institution, the correctional institution, and told them to release me. And they brought me back to Jackson and called my mother. So when she got the call, she was thinking they was calling her to come and identify my remains. So when my mom came to the uh, police department, she spotted me and she just went berserk. I mean, it was, it was one of those uh, glorious times. She began running in my direction and I knew the way she was running, she was gonna fall. Uh, I just had handcuffs and they was behind my back. So I headed in her direction and sure enough, she fell, but I was in position for her to fall on me and her weight carried me down. So we on the floor and she's squeezing me like she's trying to kill me. <laughs> so the officers let us stay there for a minute or two. It seemed like much longer. So they took the handcuffs off me and they had to lift both of us up. That was Hezekiah Watkins speaking with KPBS race and equity reporter Katie Heisen. What thoughts do you have about the disparities that exist with missing children of color? What ideas do you have to solve it? Give us a call at 619-452-0228 and leave us a message. Or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. We'd love to share your ideas here on Midday Edition. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 on KPBS television for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all podcasting platforms. I'm Andrew Bowen. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.